and welcome to Start Right Here, a podcast where we discuss breaking in, standing out, and the path to success in the beauty industry. I'm your host, Corinne Corbett, and I hope the conversations I have with my guests inspire you to forge a path of your own. Let's get started. Hi, everybody. I'm really happy to welcome today to the show, Mazay Jefferson, who is a beauty educator and visionary because you have to have the vision to see what's happening in the future to educate others. His specialty is hair care, and he has been an executive at L'Oreal for many, many years. That's where I first met him. But we're going to talk today about his career journey, how he ended up in hair, and how he uses his skill set to educate professionals so that the consumers understand what's new and hot. Welcome, Mazay. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been a long time. Good to see you again. I know. Good to see you too. Can you give us your 30-second bio? Started out as a stylist and got into education young and had one of those managers in the salon that didn't necessarily like what she was doing, had kind of checked out. So took over as salon manager, and that really led me to go and move to the corporate side. I've worked at a many different brands, a Rosai with Revlon, as director of education for Carol's Daughter, and for all of the soft sheen brands, Magic, Dark and Lovely, Optimum, Optimum Professional. And then in my current role, I'm assistant vice president for development for L'Oreal Professional. And I think before we get into this, it's really important that people who choose styling as a career option see the possibilities through you. Yes. And it's funny that you say that because I was having a conversation earlier today and we were seeing how when we were coming out of beauty school and going into the salon, we thought the career path was you assist, you become a stylist, then maybe one day if you're lucky, you became a salon owner. So it's really interesting to see that now there's so many avenues. And I just think these young people have to realize what the avenues are and figure out what lane they want to go in. It's so many different lanes that you can go in and have that career pathing like most jobs have. Speaking of that, was the beauty industry a destination or a detour? Did you always want to be a stylist? No, never wanted to be a stylist. My grandparents had a salon. So I grew up in the salon environment. After school, I would come home and I would sweep hair. And I just remember saying to myself, dear God, if you let me grow up and get out of this, I will never, ever set foot in a salon again. So be careful what you ask for. <laughs> but no, it was, it was not something that I wanted to do. Honestly, I wanted to be a rock star. Do you play an instrument or do you sing? I wanted to be a rock star. <laughs> you just wanted to be a star. <laughs> um, did none of the buff. So my dad sang, had a band, made records, all of that kind of stuff. And I just remember he came to me like my junior year and said, well, what are you going to do? Because by this time, he gave up all that. He was a lawyer. 
And so he was like, well, what are you going to do? And I was like, I want to be a rock star. So he asked me the exact same questions. Can you sing? Do you play an instrument? And I was like, no, but, you know, we'll figure all that out later. Um, And he's like, no, you got to come up with a better plan than that. So there was a beauty school near my house. I was about to graduate, went over there, signed up. And I was like, okay, you know, I swept hair. I watched my grandmother do it. I can do this. Found out that it was a lot harder than it looked. And sweeping hair did not give me the skill set that I needed to be a stylist. But as I went through it, I realized, or my teachers realized that I had a knack for it. I graduated from beauty school, still did not really want to do hair. And then I went to my first hair show. And at that hair show, it was back in the days where it was real theatrical. And it was like a volcano and the volcano opened up and the models were sitting inside and the lights and the music. And I was like, oh, that's still a rock star. I can still be a rock star. (laughs) I didn't know what it took to get to that point. But then I knew that's what I wanted to do. So start hanging out at the hair shows, talking to different artists, helping out backstage. And then from there, got into education, started out small chain salon, haircuttery back in the day, started there, got on their education team, and everything just started moving from there. That's when I really learned how to present, how to train people adult learning styles, all of those kind of things. And then, yeah, so my career just kind of built from there and putting myself out there. And I'm one of those people when I want something, I go through my phone and I'll start calling and texting everybody I know that I think maybe could help me. And just like, hey, this is what I'm doing. Like, what can you do for me? Who can you introduce me to? Once I make up my mind, then I'm a go-getter for sure. I hear you. This is a little side note. My grandmother was a hairdresser too. They called them hairdressers then, not hairstylists. No, hairdressers, yep. But the funny thing was she didn't own a salon. I grew up in New York. She lived in Manhattan. She worked in a salon on the Upper East Side where the Kennedys went. And she was the maid at first. And then she was the wash girl. And she went and got her license and she became a stylist in that salon. And so we didn't get to visit her there, but we got some of the benefits of the things that she got tickets to stuff because people would just tip her with those things. But it's interesting when it's in your family, you never think, but you know, I was the kitchen beautician in college and all that sort of stuff (laughs) too. You know, I'm in beauty in another way, but my hairstylist, when I was first out of college, I worked at Elle at the time and she used to say, you know, you should just get your license and just do hair here at the weekend because you know. I know you like to do hair. So it's funny how like your roots show themselves. Yep. Well, I'm the oldest. And so I had all my brothers and sisters to practice on. You know, my first relaxer, I gave my sister outside in the backyard. And I think I might've got beat for it when we came in the house. You know, the salt and pepper cut, did that in the basement. Got another beating for that as well. Oh, that is funny. Let's talk about your first job. Was hair cuttery your first job or what was the first salon job after you graduated? My first salon job was a little private salon in Hartford County in Maryland, where I'm from. So I was there, I'll say maybe three years. And I learned a lot about 
how to deal with clients, how to juggle your book, all of that kind of stuff. Also learned some things that I knew I didn't want to do when I moved on. I hated, you know, Saturday mornings, you go to the salon, you've got three people waiting for you, you shampoo, put conditioner on everybody, and then you leave them sit there for hours till you get to them. I knew that's not what I wanted my career to look like. I wanted to get people in and out, wanted to try to my best to run on time. Obviously, we all have our moments, but you know, those are some of the things that I learned that I didn't want, which is still good in life. You know, we always look for those aha moments on the positive side, but sometimes you learn best from those negative moments where you're like, okay, not sure what I want to do yet, but I know this is not what I want to do. So that salon experience was kind of the, these are the things that I know I don't want in my career. Then moved to hair cutting. What did you learn there that set you up for success? Like you took some things that you didn't want to do, but is there anything Mm -hmm. there that you learned that you still do today? Yes. Learn to really be personable with the client, always to find out. And this was a lesson that I took with me from that point on. The stylist beside me, instead of asking her client, well, what do you want today? You know, are you getting the usual? Her first question to all of her clients were, what can't I do? And she told me, I said, well, why are you asking them what you can't do? Don't you want to know what you can do? And she said, no, because if they tell me what I can do, it's going to be very limited. If they tell me what I can't do, that's going to give me all the information that I know for now and for services in the future and things to recommend to them. And I was like, oh, and that made a lot of sense. And that resonated with me. So I would use that on my clients until this day. Even if we have models, when they sit down, I'm always like, she's like, well, I think, and I was like, nope, tell me what I can do. Then we'll figure out what we're going to do today. So that was, I think, the biggest lesson that I learned. How did you go from this small salon to hair cuttery? So really (laughs) the plan was go work at hair cuttery, just build a clientele, and then take that clientele and go back to a private salon. Got to hair cuttery, and I want to say within like my first year there, so this guy kept coming into the salon and he would just stand there and like watch me. And I was like, okay, not really sure what's going on here. And it did it like two or three times. And then finally I asked somebody, who was that? And they're like, oh, he's a trainer for hair cuttery. So I said, okay. So he came back and he would stand there and he would watch again. Finally, I was like, well, I heard you're a trainer. If I'm doing something wrong, like, please let me know. I'm always you know, willing to learn. And he said, no, actually just the opposite. I'm looking at you and you make beautiful hair. I was like, oh, well, thank you. And he's like, have you ever thought about education? And I was like, well, not really. He's like, well, why don't you do a haircut, do a style for me, record it send the tape in and let's see what happens. So I said, okay. So I did the tape, sent it to him, didn't hear anything back for a while. And then he called and asked me if I would like to be on their styling team. So that really kind of got me started with education. Went from the styling team to actually teaching classes. So I started off as a designer. So I was doing cutting and styling And I liked that. And then we had a conversation again and he said, well, you know, the real money's in color. 
And I was like, oh, not really that big on color. Don't know about all the formulating and all that. And then he said, in New York, there are people that just do color that are making over 200000 a year. And I said, okay, so I guess I'm going to learn how to do color. So just went to all the coloring classes I could. And by this time, I looked at Redken because at the time, like Redken was kind of big, well, still is big with hair color. So took classes from them, ended up getting color certified through them, and then started teaching for them. So then while I was teaching for them, Haircuttery gave me the flexibility to kind of come and go as I needed. And they liked the idea of having a Redken artist working in the salon. So long story short, I ended up being there for almost seven years based off of that. Yeah, it sounds like you were able to build your reputation while still at Haircuttery. Yes, went there to build my clientele, ended up building my reputation, really learning about color, seeing the different side of the business because, you know, they're a chain salon. So you got to see a bunch of different salons, how they worked, talked to the managers, kind of found out all the ins and outs. So, yeah, so that really established me, I think, in my career and gave me a direction. Were you a full-time platform artist at one point after that? Yes. Well, kind of during that piece. So I left Hair Cuttery, went to another brand. It was called Colorworks. So it was Color Focus Salon. And when I was there, I was in the salon maybe once or twice a month. And the rest of the time I was doing platform work. So you were doing a lot of hair shows from that. Yes. Were you seeing the theater of it and kind of like figuring out what you would do to kind of make your show special? Yes. So luckily, they were very open to like letting us come up with our own segments and things like that. And especially at that point, they were doing primarily Caucasian hair. So me being on the team, you know, I was like, well, we need some Black girls here. We want to see some Black hair. And so they kind of left it up to me and a couple of other Black artists on the team to put our own segments together. So we put together our segments, kind of decide on the theme. I like to make things creative. Like one time at the Chicago show, we did a Matrix theme. And, you know, we all had on the long black jackets and the models. You know, we got to do that kind of artistic, that avant-garde feel. That part was great and really gave me the autonomy to hone my stagecraft, hone my educator skills, and then still come back to the salon. And by that time, I had a pretty good clientele. It was a nice balance. And I was feeling like a rock star right this point. And you were still in Maryland. So when you went to Ulta, did you move to mm-hmm. Chicago? Yes. So worked through all of that and what Ulta came to the table with. So at this time, Ulta was kind of going through some restructuring They wanted to bring in Redken as their back bar and teach all Redken education. The issue was, you know, I love Ulta, no shade to Ulta, but they were very much, this is the way we do things. You don't deviate from that path. And it's black or white. There was no gray in between. So they felt it would be easier to bring a Redken artist in and teach them the Ulta way versus taking somebody from Ulta and then trying to train them 
in Redken methodology. So that's how I got started with Redken. Did not want to move to Chicago because I was like, it's freezing cold. What am I going to do there? And turned out to be the best eight years of my life. Love Chicago. It was amazing. And at Alta, when I got there, we were building a training team. We started out, we had like four to five artists on the training team. And when I left eight years later, we had over 60 artists and basically a waiting list of people trying to get in to the education team. Uh, when I first got there, I was going around the country to salons and you know doing my spiel and my song and dance to try to get people to join. And then when I left, people were lining up to come in. So that made me feel really good that I built something. Yeah, great legacy. How many salons were you overseeing? So I'd say the last two to three years I was there, we had around 830 salons that we were dealing with. And we created a two-week training program for when the salon first opened because they were opening a lot of salons. Their goal at that time was like to get to a thousand. So they were opening like two or three salons a month. So the team would go spend like two weeks there doing training. Then also we started in the later years creating a collection. So we would create the collection from some of our lead artists. And then my job was to back it into breaking it down to make it user-friendly for all artists, whether you're a beginner or whether you were you know, well into your career. And we would train every salon. It would take us like three months, but we would go in each market. Some salons, we would do cluster classes. Others, we would do individual trainings. But basically, everybody in the company got trained on all of the new looks, all of the new techniques. So you lived in Chicago, but you also lived on the road. Yeah, I paid rent in Chicago and I lived on the road for sure. That's amazing. So let's talk about the first time you had to like deconstruct a look in order to teach someone. Mm -hmm. What was the challenge there? The challenge, which is still the challenge, I like to create lessons that no matter where you are in your career, you will get it. You know how that old saying, everything in there but the kitchen sink? So I would create things with everything in there but the kitchen sink. So if you were a new artist, you would have everything you need. Someone asked you a question, I would even give you, like, these are some of the questions they might ask. These are your responses that you can give them. If you're an established artist, then it was more like you just follow these bullet points and fill in the rest with, you know, your own speech. So that was like the hardest part. And you, my process is I always create the end look and I would like work on a mannequin, have flip charts, create the end look, and then back out of it on how I got to that. Or if the team was creating it, I would sit there with like my phone or a video camera because it wasn't on the cell phone in those days and tape it and then take notes and then watch it and then write down what they did and back into it that way. So we would do the lesson plans that way. We would do hit sheets for them and have the diagrams on the hit sheets, product knowledge pieces in there, because I always felt everybody uses product, but nobody ever tries to sell product. You know, I wanted to make it basically a 360 and really wanted stylists to be able to live a better life and support their family on what they were making 
just going to salons, I would see people either undercharged or they were giving service away. You know, so I was like, let's get you out of that and let's make you feel good about what you're doing. So that way you can pass it on and it can turn into income. Because, you know, if you go out looking for money, you're going to stay broke. But if you're doing something you're passionate about, then the money is going to find you. That's true. Now, being in charge of a lot of salons and like also having to look at profitability of these salons, like not opening these salons, but how can we make them more profitable? How did you balance the creative with the financial? Luckily, when at Ulta, my job was really just to deal with the creative side. There was another team that dealt with the financials. When I came to Dark and Lovely, Carol's Daughter, that's when it all kind of fell in my lap and I had to balance the financials along with, you know, we had to be creative on a budget, balling on a budget. (laughs) (laughs) Start Right Here is brought to you by Beauty Biz Camp where we equip and inspire the next generation of industry leaders. Head over to our website, pdbizcamp.com, for more information and sign up for our mailing list so you can stay in the know about our upcoming programming. Talk to me about moving to New York from Altec. Were you recruited or did you go after the job in New York? Actually, the person that was leaving the job knew me and we were like friends on social and things like that. And they told them, he's like, you know, I'm putting in my two weeks notice. You should look at this guy as my replacement. And when the number one hair company in the world comes a calling, <laughs> I was cautious, but it really turned into a whirlwind because a little backstory. So I had applied with L'Oreal a couple of years prior to that. And came to New York, did some interviews, and then nothing really came of it. So I was kind of expecting the same thing this time, but they flew me to New York. Um, I had a full day of interviews, met with probably like eight to 10 different people. And they're like, okay, well, you know, we'll get back to you. So I was expecting to be like last time and it would be months. They called me that following week. And I just remember it was the week before Thanksgiving. And they called, offered me the job, and was like, well, we need you in New York right after Christmas. And I was like, "Uh, I don't know if that's possible. And they're like, no, we'll make that possible. And they really did a great job of taking care of me to get me to New York in that time frame. And been there the last nine years now. Your first role there was on Dark and Lovely and Carol's Daughter, or was it Carol's Daughter? I had just the one brand, Dark and Lovely. So I did that for about a year. It was director of education for them and had a team of artists from all around the country. Johnny Wright, Michelle Obama's hairdresser was like one of them, good friend of mine. Started with that and then they started acquiring other brands. So we took on Optimum Professional. So then we started doing like the hair shows Bronner Brothers and all that with them. And then they were like, there was talk, they wanted a natural brand. And I really didn't think it was going to happen. But then we started having like these private meetings and I still was like, this isn't going to happen. And then they called me to a meeting one day and I walked in and Lisa Price 
was sitting there and I was like, oh, this is really happening. So from then there, I took over Carol's daughter as well. And we kind of changed the division. It was called MCB, so Multicultural Beauty. And it was encompassing all of the ethnic brands at L'Oreal, except for Mazzani, because Mazzani was on the professional side. So they made me head of all of the ethnic brands there. So we did education for five different brands while I was there. Five brands. So one brand can keep you really busy. But, you know, you like challenges because 800 salons. So you had a track record of working uh, on the impossible situations. So five brands simultaneously looking at innovation at those brands and then education because you had to look at the innovation to see what you had to educate people about. Yeah, so... At L'Oreal, we have a department, it's called DMI, and DMI is the one that really creates the formulas, puts the products together. So would work closely with them on creating the product and what the product did, the efficacy of the product. And then once it launched, then me and my team would be responsible for getting the word out on social and at hair shows. And then we would also do like in-store visits and desk sides with all the editors, which is where I believe we met. We would kind of do all of that. When we took on the Carol's Daughter brand, the difference was Lisa Price was kind of her own DMI. She created all her own products. She created the smells. Like she had her hands in everything and nothing changed. I know people always say, oh, they changed the formulas. They did this. No, kept all of her formulas the same. She stayed on in a DMI role and was still creating products. So we would work hand in hand. She would create them and then pass them off to us. And then we would do the same. The difference with there is it added TV into the element because they would do a lot with, you know, some of like the online shows and things like that. So then we would also edit that piece into the mix as well. Tell me about the difference of educating professionals and now you're educating consumers. So what were the differences there? I mean, the major difference is in one case with professionals, you're teaching people how to use the product. They already know how to do hair. So you're just kind of giving them the do's and don'ts of the products and letting them run and play. Where with consumers, you've got to give them the full story. And with stylists, we just want to know, is it going to work? What's it going to look like? And is the hair going to hold? With a consumer, it's more about a feeling and speaking to them in a way of that, um, I guess the easy way to put it, everybody has in their mind that lifestyle that you want to live. So with consumers, you're selling them that vision of that lifestyle. This product is going to help you be in that lifestyle because blah, blah, blah. So that's where marketing really came in. And at this point, you know, I started going to school for marketing because it tied so closely to what we were doing and you get to see it from all sides. So speaking to the consumer that way, definitely the consumer also wanted something tied to it. More so when we were still doing a lot more of relaxing then usually they wanted a celebrity or some spokesperson tied to it almost to validate or back up what 
education team was saying, and then you give them the uses, how to use it, and create a full regimen for them. When the natural consumer came in, it shifted a lot because then the celebrities became the influencers, not the actual celebrities. So then it turned more into doing these big events and inviting the editors, inviting the influencers, because once you had the influencers liking it and using the product, they kind of did all of that extra marketing work for you on their pages, talking about it, which, you know, you hoped. And we really wanted to make sure that it was authentic, uh, especially with the Carol's Daughter brand. Like most of the celebrities that spoke on behalf of the Carol's Daughter brand weren't paid. They did it because they actually like loved the brand and loved the product. So that really made our job a lot easier, you know, because you could listen to me or you could listen to Will and Jada. <laughs> We're talking about influencers, but how did your job shift? And that I'm just talking about overall as social media became more prominent. So as social media became more prominent, a lot of the good and bad of it a lot of the big trade shows that we would have, you would start now doing most of all of that online. And really that money that we were spending on doing a big elaborate trade show, now we would spend on doing a big elaborate launch event and getting the right list of who's the who to come to the event. And like you said, giving them that experience. So all of our events, we tried to make them very themed, very immersive, like you're coming into our world and we want to make it beautiful, make it special. And then while you're there, now we're going to talk about what the product does and show you and have beautiful models walking around modeling the looks. So that's where the focus kind of became and doing small intimate events where you would do like a, we did one like curls and cocktails and invited the natural community and it was really just drinks and light appetizers and in the middle of the kind of mixer then you would take 10 or 15 minutes show models talk about products pass out bags same amount of work but you're just shifting it into different aspects which i like because i like the personal feeling and i like that the editors and influencers would just come up, talk to me, and you could say, hey, well, you know, just give me a call and if you have any questions. You know, it was very different than being on a stage with just thousands of people around you and not being able to get that interaction, just hearing yourself talk. <laughs> and one of the differences I would imagine from the other roles, once you were at L'Oreal, you were being interviewed much more by the press. Again, being the spokesperson and also educating the editors about how to talk about a trend, a product to their readers. Yes. Or blogger or influencer, but you were doing more interviews. Doing more interviews, uh, had the opportunity, you know, met a lot of wonderful celebrities, uh, worked with them at our events. Also, you know, I say one of the high points in my career was a guest host on Wendy Williams, and we did a whole like style segment. So that was really fun. That's pretty cool. So you're back on the professional side now. So now I'm back on the professional side, yes. So how I told you, you know, thinking ahead, seeing what my career is looking like, I was ready, and I know it sounds crazy, but I was ready for more, for something bigger. And on the consumer side, 
there wasn't a lot of room for growth because on the consumer side, education is kind of marketing kind of runs the show and education is a piece that is nice to have, but not necessarily a must have. So on the professional side at L'Oreal, it's really flipped. Like education almost runs the show and we really partner more with marketing, but everything isn't about marketing. Like there's a real focus on education. Plus in my role now, it's more global. So we're in 32 different countries and have uh, four academies like around the world. So that was like my next thing. I was like, okay, I've done it here. Let's see if we can do it on a bigger stage. Because, you know, you always say to yourself, do I really know what I'm doing or have I just been getting lucky? (laughs) So I felt taking it to more of a global scale would be the proof in the pudding if it was really me or if I was just being lucky. Yeah, I guess that would show it. Um, (laughs) And if you were lucky, you you know, you're going to have to learn really quickly because that's a large audience to have to prove yourself to. You had to go back into curriculum development in a different kind of way, kind of using more modern tools now. How has that been? I can honestly say, and this is going to sound almost crazy considering the time that we live in, but one of the best things that happened to my career was COVID. Because since we couldn't do shows, we couldn't go into stores or salons, We had to basically, in a matter of two weeks, change everything around. And one of the areas that I was hired for was this platform that we have called Access. And open to all stylists. And it's almost like if Instagram and YouTube had a baby, it would be Access, but it's only for like professional stylists. So our goal was to have that launched in a year to a year and a half. Due to COVID, we had to speed all of that up. So it not only launched by the end of March, we had it launched. Also, all of our in-store classes and our academy that we had here in New York, we had switched over to digital and we were holding virtual classes. We were doing online training constantly on the brand page for our virtual academy. You sign up, we would send you a mannequin, send you product, and then on like a Zoom we would hold class and you would still get all of the same coaching, see all of the same things, but it would be from the comfort of your home. So that really kind of propelled us into the digital age quicker than we thought we were going to be in the digital age. Now, the challenge with that is though, now I write curriculum for the Insulon, plus we write curriculum for the digital piece. So it's almost like you're doing everything twice. Right. But they're doing it around the world. So what's the language situation? Do you have instructors that are following your curriculum that are teaching in different countries? Yes. So in each of the 32 countries, we have like a country lead. So like I'm the lead for the U.S. We do what's called co-devs, like co-development. And each of the leads We'll get together like on a Zoom, we'll have our mannequins, we'll come up with whatever like the look is going to be or whatever we're going to educate on. And then sometimes like um, when George Floyd, Black Lives Matter movement really kind of awoken people here, so to speak. And for those of you that don't know, like L'Oreal Professional is, I am one of the only people of color there. 
So when that happened, our leader, who is French, was like, I want to go above and beyond whatever the rest of the brands that are doing. You know, what can we do? What should we do? What should we not do? So, you know, we really had a heart to heart conversation. And I said, a lot of brands are going to just check the box. They're going to put a black model on a billboard, put somebody with curly hair on a box, and then it's back to business as usual. And she was like, I don't want that to be the case. How do we not make that be the case here? So me and my team were tasked on really creating a whole new methodology for the brand and making it inclusive of everybody. So we set out on a goal. Now in all of our education, we talk all different hair types. We talk all different textures. When we're talking color, we get formulations for, you know, if your hair is coiled or tightly curled, then this is going to be your formulation. This is going to be your step-by-step. And these are your other step-by-steps. Making sure that people of color have more visibility with the brand. We looked at our artist network and made a conscious decision that we're going to bring more people of color into our artist network because you can't have your marketing and your imagery speak to one thing, but then the people that are creating it don't look like that if you know what I mean. Yes, I do. So that was really our goal, not only to have more people of color on staff, but have more people of color out teaching in the field and more representation in our visuals all around. Since April, that's kind of been our mission. And I think, you know, we're on a good road. Obviously, you know, with everything, there's humps and bumps in the road, but we're definitely getting in a better place. And I really think in 2001, or no, excuse me, (laughs) 2021, you're going to see more of that from us and really a lot more education. Yeah. Well, I love the idea that the education department is making sure that it is inclusive of texture and type. But what I think is really important that you said is that it's not checking off a box. I mean, a lot of companies, and we're seeing this, there was a report recently, I don't recall who who did this uh, research. It's research on imaging, how many dark skin people are being used in ads on social. So there's already fatigue. So we saw a lot in May and June, but there's already fatigue because that percentage has gone down according to this research. But understanding that it's not just the visual. It's not just writing a check, but it is your internal and external actions. And it's creating a framework from which you do your business. Not like, here's, we have a special episode of, you know, we're not trying to do the special episode of Black Beauty over here. What we're looking for and what I like that you said is that it's a plan that is a sustained action in the way you're doing business. So thank you. Oh, yes. I feel like this. I have been blessed and have gotten to this point and a seat at the proverbial table, you know. So it's my job that now that I'm here to make sure that other people come and can pull up a chair 
and have a seat there as well. And we push this forward. It's not just for me to get there and forget where I came from and who got me here. No, not at all. What do you think the unsung skill is to do what you do? I mean, because you're juggle, you're creating, you can do both consumer and professional, and it's in person and digital. Those skills are different. Yes, you would think they would be the same, but it's definitely different. You have to make virtual more interactive to keep people's attention. I would say the unsung skill is being able to juggle, having that time management. You really have to be able to plan out what you're going to do. And the biggest advice I have, once you make your plan, stick to your plan. Often, you know, things pop up and we want to change, but when you're working with something that big, you really have to keep to your plan. Of course, there's going to be little things that you slide in here and there, but primarily what we establish at the end of the year, that's going to be what we focus and what we work through the following year. When do you know when it's time to move on, to pivot or leave a job? A couple different things. I feel like internally, you know when it's time to move on, when you're not excited about getting up and going to work. I always say, you know, I would never tell my boss this, but the job that I do, I would do for free because it's a passion. It's what I love to do. When I don't feel that way anymore, then I know it's time for me to move on because something in me is not being fulfilled. And we spend more hours at work than we do with our own friends and family. So you have to feel fulfilled about that. So that is the biggest thing that I would say. Second thing I would say is when you look around and you see where the business is going and it doesn't align with where you're going. And that's not always a bad thing. Sometimes it just is what it is. And you know, you have to get out and you have to keep on your path. There's so many moments in our life that we're on our path and we get detoured and get on somebody else's path for whatever reason. And sometimes it works, but a lot of times you end up not feeling fulfilled once again. So you really have got to keep your own journey, no matter what it means. And I mean, sometimes it is giving up a job that maybe is paying you a lot to go to something that's paying less, but it's giving you more opportunities to grow. You know, when I left, like Carol's Daughter of Dark and Lovely, loved them. And I love the celebrity aspect. I love the travel aspect, you know, because I just love the travel. But I saw this more as something long term and to spread the wings. So in order for me to grow, I had to give up that because I had been doing that for so long. I was almost just on autopilot. You know, you wake up, you're like, okay, I got to do a video shoot. Got to do this event tonight. Okay, I got to get on a plane. By the way, it was fun, but I didn't feel challenged. The final question for this section, Black man working in the beauty industry. How important is it for you to be seen? And for younger Black men and men of color, so we're going to talk about the BIPOC diaspora right here, to see you and to see opportunities through you. It's very important because I think back, I never once imagined I could be assistant vice president, predominantly white company, 
or even assistant vice president at any company, really, because you didn't see a lot of that. And there wasn't a lot of people out there, especially in this industry, you weren't seeing a lot of that with people of color. So I think it's very important, one, for anybody, Black, male or female, to see someone in that position because then it gives them something to aspire to, or at least to say, oh, well, if they can do that, then I know I can do this. And I think that's so important, especially these days where there's so many visuals that you see on TV and on Instagram and, you know, currently in the state, so much hate being spewed in all different areas. It could kind of sometimes make you want to, you know, shrink yourself and you can't ever shrink yourself. You got to expand and, you know, put that in your rear view. I mean, obviously you still always know it's there, but you've got to forge your path and you've got to break the barriers that other people before you did. Now let's move on to our fast track questions. What's the first beauty grooming product you've tried or fragrance? First one that I tried was Magic Shave, (laughs) the old smelly version. (laughs) And funny that you ended up working on the brand. (laughs) Yes, it was. It was. That was one of the first things I said. I was like, uh, does it still smell the same? And they're like, no, actually it doesn't. (laughs) What's the latest product you tried? Well, can't tell now, but for a while there, I had my hair long and was doing like the sponge. And I really love the Carol's Daughter Cocoa Crumb Cream. Gave it a lot of moisture, brought out my curls, and with the sponge, it worked great. Yeah, so that was probably my latest product. What's the advice you either live by or live alone regarding grooming, appearance? Always dress for the job that you want. And even if you don't have it, if you want to be the manager, you want to be the boss, then always come looking like you're the manager, you're the boss. Who is your Black style icon? Oh, that one's easy. Regina King. Stunningly beautiful. Always dressed. Like, hair as always looked amazing. Like, everywhere she goes, I love to see her. Plus, she's one of my favorite actresses. Yeah. And doing such great things right now. Yes. Amazing. Who gave you the best career advice and what was it? It was years ago and he was a stylist and I was in his class and he said, everybody in here can do hair. So it's not if you can do hair or not, that's going to make you successful. It's your dog and pony show. He's like, so if you're a dog and pony show, your dogs drive around in a little rig convertible, then the person beside you, you need to have them drive in a convertible and then jump through a hoop that's on fire. He's like, because that's what clients want to see. They want to see the showmanship because, you know, there's people that do great hair that are never booked. And there's people that I wouldn't even let cut my dog and they are booked months at a time. Oh, that is great advice. And it makes me want to ask you about, do you ever feel like you made the rock star status? Did you ever do one of the big hair shows and do the huge thing? Not the volcano, but did you do a big thing that made you feel like a rock star? Yes. I think 
first time I did Bronner Brothers, that was a big for me because I used to go all the time and look at all the artists. And I remember I was standing on stage and I couldn't hear because everyone around me was so loud. And at first I was annoyed and I was like, oh, can you turn my mic up? And then I realized why it was so loud and it kind of brought tears to my eyes because I was like, I'm standing on this stage where I used to come and watch other people stand on stage. And it was one of those like aha moments where like, oh yeah, this is the rock star. And with that, what I learned when I wanted to be a rock star when I was younger, it's because I wanted the attention to be on me. Why I feel like a rock star now is because people come to me and say, oh my God, I took your class some years ago and it helped me do this, or I bought my house, or now I have all of this money saved. That same feeling I get from hearing people say that, like that is what does it for me. Yes, that is so important. I just can't echo that enough. That's so important to hear that you've impacted somebody else's life. And yeah, I can understand why you feel like a rock star without singing or playing an instrument. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, I wish my father was still here for many reasons, but that was definitely one of them. Just to, you know how... When you get your own house, you turn on all the lights, turn on the air conditioner and open the window. Like, I just want to go to him and be like, you know what? I'm a rock star and I don't sing and I don't play any instruments. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that is a great place to end because I cannot think we could top that. (laughs) Thank you so much, Mazet. No, thank you so much. This was an honor. That's our show for today. Remember that there's more than one way to the top and the most important step is the first one. So start right here.